Hey there, history fans, and welcome back to the History Explains It All podcast, where we cover a variety of historical topics from the Stone Age to the Modern Age. I'm Alyssa, and today we are taking a little trip back in time to the early 1200s to examine the reign of King John of England and how he shaped the creation of one of the most influential documents in all of history, the Magna Carta. There's a lot to cover, and today I have a little help from a familiar voice. Hello. Hello. Hi there, it's Casey again. Thank you for having me back on. Oh, anytime. <laughs> I'm so excited to talk about the Magna Carta. This is, this is awesome. It's so <laughs> detailed. It's beautiful. I thought she'd enjoy coming on. <laughs> I got bored okay. doing this by myself. I need people. <laughs> Not bored. I just got lonely. I should say. Doing we miss myself. you. We miss you, Lauren. <laughs> yes, Lauren, come back. <laughs> She'll be back. She'll be back. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. She misses doing this. I can hear it to you. <laughs> oh no, I know she misses it. Yeah. <laughs> but life is busy. Yeah. <laughs> so to start off, we are going to go back to feudal England in the late 1100s. So in order to understand the Magna Carta, its impact on history and the events during the reign of King John that led up to it, we are going to go back to the 1190s. So during this time, England had a population of around three and a half million and as well as much of Europe at the time had a system of feudalism in place. And this meant that your station in life was ranked from the most powerful and wealthy down to the peasants. So boo. Boo. Poor people. Boo. No, I mean, the hate feudalism. Oh. Boo. Uh, yeah. The system. <laughs> F the system. It's a terrible system. So in, in terms of, if you're not familiar with feudalism, at the top, you've got the king, then you've got the nobles, and then the knights, and then a, a section called the freemen. And at the bottom were the villains, which is actually spelled with an E. And these were your peasants. So free men were actually people or men, actually, who were free to travel for their job or profession and usually lived in towns. And those that actually chose to live in the countryside were known as free tenants because they can actually own land and usually owned between 30 to up to 100 acres of land and then pay rent to the, the Lord itself. A villain was anyone below a free man. And in the 1190s, that was half the population of England. Wow. So it's essentially serfdom. If you're familiar with that, it's practically the same thing. A peasant worked on the land belonging to the Lord or a free tenant and typically had little, if any, rights. And usually they were bound to the land they were born in, weren't allowed to leave the village without consent of the Lord, weren't able to marry off daughters without consent of the Lord. And at the will of their overlord, they can actually be bought or sold which sucks. So sounds a little like slavery. Yeah. But was it as bad as slavery? Not necessarily. I, I, I mean, no. I would of say- Of course not, but like similar, high similar vein. Similar and- Slavery light. <laughs> well, I mean, serfdom certainly was much more close to it than just being a peasant. Peasants, you could typically run your own little section. Like a Mm -hmm. lot of the typical day-to-day governing was done by the locals themselves rather than the Lord himself specifically. Because typically he was off fighting wars or 
gaining money to give over to the king. Mm-hmm. But in terms of serfdom, your everyday activities were overseen by the mayor or the sheriff or anyone else who was in charge of you. They could still be bought and sold, man. That's mm. yeah, that's something. Thank you for the clarification. I always <laughs> like to clarify for people who aren't familiar. Oh, you sure? Yeah. So, in terms of feudalism, the lands of the countries or areas of within the country that were owned by the king were split up into different sections. The king himself, at least in England, typically kept about 20% for himself, 25% for the church, 50% to the barons and nobles who promised their allegiance to the crown, and knights owned the last 5%. And because of this parceling off of land and giving 50% to the barons meant that they had allegiance to the king, but if they believed that the king didn't govern well, they had the right to rebel. And so if you kept the barons mm-hmm. happy, wealthy, wealthy being a keyword, and part of the governing process, you likely wouldn't end up with a rebellion. But if a king didn't govern well, there was usually dissonance, wars, rebellions, and violence, typically. You had a lot of civil wars throughout England's history. And this meant that fighting often destroyed crops and lands for harvesting, which meant, especially as a peasant, all of your practically unpaid hard work just got destroyed because the king made a whole mess. Oh, messed up. Yeah, cities burned, crops destroyed. And that's pretty much your whole life as a peasant. Oh, how do you even come back from that? You don't really. But if the king actually caused any of these hardships, such as bad, typically between England and France or battling wars to gain more land, he would need money to pay for it. And for this, he would tax the barons, the sheriffs, and free tenants, who in turn taxed the peasants, who barely made any profits enough for this extra taxation that on top of what they already typically had to pay off. Mm-mm-mm. And I would think it's probably similar enough to the peasant life in the 1700s leading up to the French Revolution, where if you couldn't pay with money, you paid with your crops. I would not want to live then. Mm-mm. Uh-uh. Most thing. of us would have been peasants. Yeah, we would have been. All right. Next, we're going to discuss the royal life of King John. Mm-mm. So many may know of King John through tellings and the adaptations of Robin Hood, one of my favorites. Or if you're familiar with English history in the late 1100s, as the younger brother of Richard, King Richard I, the Lionheart, both were known to overtax their people to pay for their wars. Those who may remember early history or civic classes may remember that King John was also the one who, after much urging from the barons, reluctantly signed the Magna Carta into effect. Before we begin to understand the effects of what the Magna Carta would do and the events leading up to it, let's talk briefly about John's life. John was born a Plantagenet on, am I pronouncing that right? Plantagenet? Yeah, there you go. Okay. (laughs) On Christmas Eve, 1167, and he was the youngest son to Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine. Being the last son, it is said that after his birth, his father named John Lackland, as there was no land to give him as royalty, the inheritance went to his older brothers. And as he grew, he showed some of the energy of his father, but also some of the same violent tendencies. 
However, John was much more unstable than Henry, as well as cruel and also paranoid. Even after his rule over 800 years ago, he is still the black sheep of the Plantagenets. Sorry. <laughs> Ever wonder why there has never been a King John II? Hmm. <laughs> Born as a spare, John was raised with the hopes of entering the church, and he grew up at the Abbey of Fontyrenant in Antony, France. I am so bad. Bear with me. To his father's disappointment, John wasn't happy with this decision, and he was quite rebellious while he was there. At the age of nine, with the intent of progressing his son's prospects, Henry had John betrothed to his very wealthy second cousin, Isabella of Gloucester. Isabella was related to Henry I, as she was the daughter of his illegitimate son, Robert of Gloucester. When John was 21, the two were married. Unfortunately, the couple had no children. In terms of what we know of his appearance, he is said to have only been five feet five inches tall, unlike Richard, had, who had been six feet five inches tall. This may sound short for today, but in his time, he was actually quite the average, while Richard was the giant. This may have also played into Richard's ego. It was, and still to this day, is perpetrated by the stories of Robin Hood that John was known to shower himself in the richness of royalty, always dressed in the highest fashion of the time and wearing the most expensive jewelry. Although Richard was his mother's favorite son, John was Henry's favorite. At one point during his teens, Henry had tried to have John crowned the King of Ireland. John, however, was not up for this idea and seemed to even have a disdain for the Irish. As seen when Irish chieftains came to pay homage to John, he and his friends mocked them, insulted and abused them. This in turn forced John to return to England. John, who was always the type to step on anyone to achieve the highest power, even attempted to overthrow his own brother after Richard became king. When Richard was off on the Third Crusade, John attempted to overthrow William Longchamp, Richard's overseer, while he was gone. It was also during this time that Richard was captured by Leopold V, Duke of Austria, who demanded that England pay, literally, a king's ransom of six 60,000 pounds. This ended up overtaxing the people in order to free the king. When Richard finally returned, he actually forgave John for this attempt. Very generous of him. When the Lionheart died in battle in 1199, John was crowned the new king at the age of 32. Although there was another claim to the throne by Arthur of Brittany, John was able to seize the treasury first, declaring himself king. His coronation took place on Ascension Day in 1199. Now, during much of his reign, John faced many oppositions to his rule, as well as his right to rule, occasionally in fights with Arthur, Arthur and other enemies. One of these enemies was Hugh de Lucinan. Lucinan? Lucinan? Lucinan, <laughs> Who at the time of John's, John's coronation, was betrothed to the, to the 12-year-old, oh my gosh, Isabella of Anguline. Anguline? Okay. Anguline. 
Yeah. I, I'm so sorry. I apologize. <laughs> French is not for everybody. I'm, I'm still with, yeah. And I, I was really bad at French. I excelled in Spanish. And now I'm doing really well in Italian, but French, French was never my forte. I'll get better, I promise. I'm going to have to start doing the Duolingo. I'm going to have to do the French. <laughs> so, moving on. The marriage was on hold for the time being, as Isabella was te- deemed too young to marry just yet. Thank God. This didn't seem to bother John, as he soon wooed Isabella and stole her from Hugh. Due to the rules of prohibited degrees put into effect by the pope for european royalty john's marriage to his first wife was eventually annulled because of their blood closeness that's awesome with this john then wed the second isabella this incised hugh greatly and he began plotting with author and others against john philip augustus the king of france was a major plotter against John and went as far as to recognize Arthur, the true English heir in May, 1200. With this, Arthur besieged his 80-year-old grandmother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, at her estate in Mirabu. Eleanor was able to send word to John who then came to her rescue. It was here that John was able to capture Arthur and Hugh, imprisoning them both. By 1203, rumors had spread that Arthur was dead, killed by John in a drunken rage. When John was drunk and possessed by the devil, he slew Arthur with his own hand and tying a heavy stone to the body, cast it into the scene. Later that same year, they saw the most embarrassing event happen to John as king. Because of John stealing his soon-to-be bride, Hugh was able to ask Philip for dues from John. John was then summoned to the French court, and when he refused to comply with Philip's request to repay Hugh, Philip quickly declared that all John's French territories, except Gascony, were to be forfeited. Richard's beloved castle of Chateau Gillard fell to the French forces that year as well as part of this repayment. This, as well as losing battles with the French, left John with only a fraction of the empire that he had inherited, built by Richard and Henry II. In 1215, not long after signing the charter, John asked the Pope for permission to ignore this document, claiming that he was forced to sign it against his will. This may have been a plan all along while the negotiations happened. When the knowledge of this reached the barons, they rebelled yet again against John and then set up a a rebel base in East Anglia. After this continued rebellions with the barons, John tried to reroute a trip he was on around the area of East Anglia. Now, although he was able to navigate around an area known as the Wash, his baggage train was not so successful. And during unexpected incoming tide, the carriage carrying the crown jewels became stuck in the sand, and they all became lost to the sea. These crown jewels even included pieces that he had inherited from his grandmother, Empress Miltilda, who, if you know anything about her, probably turned her in her grave when this happened. Now, possibly catching dysentery during this trip, John was taken to nearby Newark Castle, where he worsened, and then he died on October 18, 1216. There was one statement after his death that quoted, 
found as it is, hell itself is defiled by the presence of John. Now, this really goes to show just how much he was liked by the people. <laughs> he was later buried at Worcester Cathedral, and then his son Henry took the throne. So next, we're going to be moving on to the subjugation of King John from the years 1205 to 1215. In 1205, John had actually interfered with an election of the Archbishop of Canterbury. John had wanted to appoint a loyalist. The previous Archbishop, however, had someone else in mind, and the Pope wanted to appoint Stephen Langton. John's interference really angered the Pope, Pope Innocent III, who issued an edict declaring that no church services could be held in England for six years. During these six years, no one in England could also be buried in consecrated grounds. That's intense. In continuing his quarrels with the Pope, John actually found himself excommunicated in 1209. This wouldn't be the only time a ruler of England, by the way, would be excommunicated. Henry VIII and Elizabeth I were also excommunicated. Fun fact. Because of the plots that had begun to take place against him by the barons, John had actually agreed to make peace with the Pope in 1213. In accepting Langdon as the new Archbishop of Canterbury and then swearing fealty to the Pope, as well as acknowledging that all John's lands were in the domain of the Pope, John was absolved now of this excommunication. And the edict of not allowing church services or consecrated barrels was then lifted. This fealty to the Pope over the domains of England, however, did not sit well with the barons. Now they revolted and took arms against John. The barons formed an army and then captured the city of London. After the city was taken, John was then compelled to meet their demands. On June 15, 1215, he met with their delegates at Runnymede near Windsor. And that's where he signed the Magna Carta. This document is possibly one of the first of its kind, which limited the king's power in relation to taxation, very important, religion, and policies, including foreign policies and justice. Now, interestingly, when we are looking back on things that King John tried to achieve, he can be seen as not as bad as history made him out to be. During his reign, King Richard barely spent time in England, really only going there to collect taxes from barons and knights to fund his battles and the crusades. <laughs> and this allowed the barons to mostly do as they pleased. When John took over, he tried to even strengthen and enrich the monarchy by taxing knights and barons for their fair share, as well as paying for the wars and battles that John tried to win, although failed. He even attempted to modernize the government, which we know of through thorough records that were kept then. These attempts, which may seem a bit familiar if you have some knowledge on the records and successful taxing of the wealthy by Henry VII, very much angered these barons who were used to doing things their own way with having to pay as little as possible to the crown. They also saw it as an attack on their very freedoms to do what they wanted, mainly without recourse. After John's defeat at the Battle of the Bovines in 1214, yet another battle lost to the French, he requested that the barons fund his campaign for another battle, which meant overtaxing yet again. 
This nearly put England into bankruptcy and was a last straw for the barons. On May 5th, 1215, 40 of the barons renounced their ties to the crown, along with support from the Scottish and the French. The 40 barons formed an army they called the Army of God and marched toward London. The Army of God was headed by Robert Fitz Walter, who called himself the Marshal of the Army of God and the Holy Church. At the time of the coronation of John, Robert was considered to be one of the greatest men in England and one of the most powerful. In fact, through blood relations and battle during his life, Robert was in contact with several of the 25 barons who would later become enforcers of the charter. On May 17, 1215, the army was successful in capturing the city, gaining more support as time went on and then giving John no choice but to negotiate. On June 8th, John issued letters of safe conduct to the barons and asked them to meet in the meadow of Runnymede. Now, little is known of what specifically went on during these negotiations. It is likely that they went on for several days, at least between June 10th to June 15th. Some of the more well-known on the barons' sides were Robert Fitzwalter, Richard DeClaire, Geoffrey de Manneville, Roger Bigode, Sayre de Quincy, and William Marshall Jr., son of William Marshall. On the side of King John were Stephen Langdon, William Marshall Sr., who was one of England's most famous knights, Jocelyn of Wales, the Bishop of Bath and Glastonbury, Hubert de Burgh, and several other loyal clerks and barons. After signing the document, John wrote to the Pope Innocent III, asking him to annul the Carta. He would go on to issue a papal bull and bill, papal bill in 1215. Oh no, it's a bull. It's called a bull. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, it's not. It's so not it a typo. A typo. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, it's not a typo. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. Okay, learn something new every day. He would go on to issue a papal bull in 1215, declaring the Magna Carta to be null and void of all validity forever on the grounds that it was illegal, unjust, harmful to royal rights, and shameful to the English people. In fact, this annulment led many of the 40 barons to be excommunicated, and Stephen Langdon was even suspended from his office in September. This bull led yet to more rebellions by the barons, who felt that their efforts and the promises that King John was up to uphold were not being kept. Don't blame them. These rebellions would continue up to King John's death in 1216 and into the reign of Henry III. In fact, the papal bull led the barons to keep London under their control until John implemented the charter. When John raised an army to try to defeat them, the barons actually invited the Prince of France, Louis, later Louis VIII, to become the new English king. Louis even raised an army himself and took to the battlefield in England in 1216 to fight for this invitation. Eventually, with the help from Pope Honorus III and William Marshall, the rebels began to defect to Henry's side, and Louis was defeated at the Battle of Lincoln in 1216. 
with these negotiated terms with Gulia Bikiri, the papal legate of London, Louis had denounced his claim to the English throne. These negotiated terms soon fell apart, and Louis was soon back in battle. He would find himself defeated again at the Battle of Sandwich. In 1217, he negotiated terms again and signed the Treaty of Lambeth. With this, Louis returned to France. A lot of information there. <laughs> a lot of juicy, juicy yes, information. Ju- juicy and uh, maybe a little sacrilegious. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, before we go into the next, what the Magna Carta is, I mean, just imagine your king is so, well, at least from the Baron's point of view, your king is so bad. You invite the future king of France <laughs> to come rule over your lands in England. That's bad. Oh my gosh. That's, that's yeah, that's saying a lot right there. France <laughs> to be your, your French enemy. And, yes. Oh man. Yeah. Wow. And then you really have to do something terrible for the Pope enforce an edict not allowing consecrated burial. Oh, in England, which I mean, at the I mean, it's the Middle Ages. At yeah. the time, England was heavily Catholic, mm-hmm. and there were so many abbeys and churches. And a lot of corruption going on in those too, but there were oh, so yeah. many, yeah, abbeys and churches and, and everybody went to, to, you know, everybody who was Catholic at least went to mass and went to services and wanted to be buried and consecrated holy lands. Of course. And for six years, at least, no Catholics could be buried in consecrated lands next to their churches. That's, that's horrible. You devote your life to entire religion. And then to be denied because of your king being a jackass. Pre- oh, no swearing, but yes. Oh. <laughs> no, it's okay. We'll keep. <laughs> a donkey. <laughs> there we go. Correction, your king being a donkey. <laughs> Not a bull in this case, just a donkey. Well, a bull. Yeah. The Pope is the bull. John is the donkey. <laughs> I love that image. <laughs> we should try to cartoon out that image that'd be great i'll see if caitlin can make something up <laughs> <laughs> or maybe i'll i'll put something together in some kind of collage so moving on to the magna carta itself <laughs> i for all giggles uh, mainly based on the declaration of independence at least for here in the u.s it's often believed that the great charter was written for the will of the common folk because it used the term freemen. But in terms of the Middle Ages, that meant something else. But the Magna Carta itself was actually used by the barons for themselves in order to curtail the king's unrestricted power. And this actually meant that from then on, from 1215 onward, no ruler of England would ever again have supreme ruling power. And in fact, about 100 years later, parliament was actually formed which helped to reduce the king's reach even further. And this essentially meant that in terms of English royal power, supreme kingship really only lasted about 150 years from the time of William the Conqueror in 1066 to the reign of King John. There were later times in the 15 and 1600s where 
the power was trying to become a little more supreme, but it didn't always work, but we'll get to that. So the charter was originally written in two sections. First, the Articles of the Barons, and this was 48 paragraphs, which set out different things the king could no longer do or the promises that the barons wished him to keep. The second section was actually the security clause with 25 barons listed as enactors of the charter and ensure that John would actually uphold, up, uphold his end of the bargain. So according to historian David Carpenter, Clause 61 actually states that, and this is very important, if King John did not conform to the charter within 40 days of being notified by one of the 25 barons of a transgression that was listed within the charter, the barons were empowered to seize John's castles and lands until, in their judgment, an appeasement was made. Oh, that's fantastic. Mic drop. Yeah. Yes, very much medieval mic drop. Yes. What would that be? Uh, a mace? Mace drop? Yeah, mace drop. <laughs> or, you know, the old-fashioned, you know, taking the metal glove off the hand and just... I challenge you to a duel. <laughs> uh, I love that movie so much. <laughs> Speaking of Robin Hood. <laughs> yes. <laughs> love it. Gonna have to watch it after this. Oh, I, I could watch that movie every day. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, essentially any Mel Brooks movie, but specifically that oh Robin Hood and Tights. Yeah. Who doesn't love Mel Brooks? Right. <laughs> I don't trust you if you don't like Mel Brooks. Good point. Very good point. <laughs> so within section two of the Magna Carta, there's, we see Carter, Charter, Carter, Magna, uh, I'm blah, 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 blah. <laughs> There's a part in section two that actually gives the Archbishop of Canterbury and his bishops the ability to even write their own charter in order to actually support the barons, which would actually help the barons to make sure that the Great Charter itself could not be annulled by the Pope, which, of course, actually happened, although the annulment ultimately failed, as technically so did the original purpose of the Charter as well, but later reissues of it made it a lot more permanent. So after negotiations were finalized, the Royal Chancery wrote up the final document, which became known as the Magna Carta, which actually just means the Great Charter, because at the time there was a smaller charter known as the Charter of the Forests, which we'll get to in just a minute. And so you had a small charter and the big charter. So essentially Magna Carta is literally just referred to as the big charter. And the 25 barons, as well as King John, signed it. Now, when we say sign, we don't actually mean like written on it. It's just a seal of approval, really. The mm-hmm. Articles of the Barons actually survives to this day because they were actually taken to safety by Archbishop Stephen Langton and kept in the Archiepiscopal Archives at Lambeth Palace. And they eventually have made their way over time to the British Museum. Oh, take me, I want to go. Lauren and I are still making plans. <laughs> we're, <gasps> like, we're making plans to visit several different places throughout England. And when you come with us, you're coming with us to the Diva Museum too, because we have to go, we have to go to that Roman Museum. Oh, yes, we do. <laughs> Go check that episode. And then out. we gotta go back. We gotta go over and check out Cheddar Man as well. Yes. Oh yes. <laughs> so many things to see. So many weird things. Yes, it's wonderful. 
So some of the promises are listed within the charter are one, the king could not sell or deny justice to anyone. An heir could not be made to marry someone of lower social class. No one could be arrested on the accusation of a woman. Was this a problem at the time? I don't understand this one, but I, I didn't live in the medieval times. I don't understand. I don't know if this was a problem. Additionally, foreign knights that were serving the king were requested to be deported. Royal forests had to be reduced in size, which would mean more lands for the landowners themselves because the king had swaths of forests that were illegal to poach on. Going back to Robin Hood and Tice, I'm not repeating what the sheriff of Rottingham said because it's a weird thing, but essentially you could not go poach deer on the king's forest. <laughs> And in addition to some of the promises, there was a 100 pound limit on the tax that the barons had to pay in order to inherit their lands. So if you are a baron and you die and your son is going to take over, there was always an inheritance tax, but usually it was pretty hefty. Although 100 pounds for the time was also kind of hefty, but if you had the money, it really wasn't all that bad. But it was usually a lot more than 100 pounds, so it could certainly have been a whole lot worse. So 100 pounds was the cap on paying an inheritance tax to gain the, your family land. So in addition to many of its clauses, most of them dealt with the rights of freemen, which we've talked about before, which were the barons, knights, and the free peasants who were allowed to move and pretty much own land that weren't peasants. But there is little in the charter that actually applies to the villains or peasants, but there are some. One states that there was to be a limit on taxes and fines owned by them, so it doesn't actually deprive them of any livelihood because they barely made enough to begin with. Another actually forbade royal officials from being able to seize their possessions or goods without payment. Another said that officials were no longer allowed to enforce anyone into creating bridges or working on riverbank repairs. Now, I'm not familiar with medieval infrastructure projects, but I'm assuming that this is probably a very grueling and dangerous thing to have to be forced to do, probably causing many deaths and injuries. And some of the more lesser items that were called for in the 1215 charter were the demand for fish weirs, which were uh, an obstruction place in tidal or river waters to direct the passage of trapped fish. And they requested that they be removed from the Thames as well as other rivers throughout England. The call to demiss dismiss specific servants, as we mentioned before, and even an attempt to create a standardization of weights and measures, which I don't think was approved until much later. <laughs> Interesting, also, there was even a clause that stated that a widow could not be forced to remarry against her wishes, which again, was a thing. I guess wow. if she was a really wealthy widow, you could have her forced against her, her will to reclaim, to claim all of her money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Women had no rights. <laughs> yeah, another reason why I would never want to live in that time. Yeah, you you bore children and you died. That was kind of it, I guess. I love the outfits, but that's about it. <laughs> if you could afford the outfits. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you weren't rags. Otherwise, if you're a peasant, you owned maybe two outfits and they were always dirty. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I would have been a peasant. No fun for Casey. It would not be the Renaissance Fair. No, it would be quite smelly <laughs> too. Alrighty. So next session I'm going to talk about, I'm really excited about, is the legacy of the Magna Carta. 
from the time of the signing of it in 1215, this charter has been reissued many times by later rulers. What these reissues would do would be to continue to take out the more radical or no longer useful articles and shorten the doc document, which totally makes sense. During the reign of Henry III, it was reissued three times. And when, King, when John died and Henry was only nine, William Marshall, who we will certainly do an episode about at some point. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm, was Lord Protectoriate. So terrible. And reigned until Henry came into his majority. <laughs> Sorry. Marshall issued two revised versions of the Magna Carta in 1216 and in 1217 in order to appease the barons. During the same time, Gulia Bicere was the legal, the papal legate, legate in England. So when the two versions of the Magna Carta were issued, Bicere was there to put his seal on both of them, declaring that they would both receive papal approval. Then later in his reign, Henry would make a third version in 1225, which reduced the number of clauses from 63 to 37. This third issue was mainly a way for Henry to acquire more money to fund battles against Louis VIII, previously mentioned as Prince Louis, to keep control of the English lands in Gascony. He willingly then reissued the charter in order to gain the money that he needed. The 1225 version would then become the definitive version. Another time was in 1297 during the reign of Edward I. Now this reissue confirmed the charter as part of a statute law in England, possibly an attempt to bring back power to the king. Pope Clement V annulled the 1297 issue in 1305. Edward took this then as an opportunity to reassert forest law and then to gain back those large areas of forest that had been previously taken from the king, as we discussed earlier. By 1350, half of all the original promises in the 1215 charter were no longer active and had been removed. Over time, these promises of the Carta have waxed and they have waned. Today, only three of the promises are actually still in effect. One, that the English church shall be free from royal interference. Promise one, does the creation of the Anglican church, does it go against this? So my thought with that was... Oh, sorry. I, I, I... <laughs> no worries. My, my thought with that was that the church and essentially it's a separation of church and state. Mm-hmm but royal interference with church elections and stuff, but does not the forming of the Anglican church so that Henry could divorce and remarry go uh, against that? Or yeah. I, does that sound right to me? No, that I, I can see where you're headed with that. That it, I feel like it would go against it. So the second promise is still in effect is to respect the rights and the freedoms of the people of the city of London and other towns and ports. And promise three, that no freeman shall be arrested or imprisoned without a proper trial by jury appears. Promise 39, no man, no free man shall be seized or imprisoned or stripped of his rights or possessions or outlawed or exiled or deprived of his standing in any other way. Not will we proceed with 
force against him or send others to do so, except by the lawful judgment of his equals or by the law of the land. To no one we will sell, to no one deny or delay right or justice. Although it is not known how many copies of the charter were originally made, there were four known to survive today. One in Lincoln Cathedral, two at the British Museum, and one at the Salisbury Cathedral. Later legacies of the charter would include the use of it to oppose Charles I, who demanded taxes from his people to pay for his wars abroad. And this was brought forth by lawyer Edward Cook, who claimed that the Magna Carta guaranteed specific freedom to Englishmen, including no taxation with the consent of parliament and no imprisonment without a trial. Then during the 1700s and 1800s, the Whig party even used the charter as a basis for modern English democracy, much like the US. The core principles of the charter would go on to lead many countries to use it as well as the highest example of the rights of their citizens over monarchies. We certainly see this in the, the Liberty of Subjects Act in 1354, the Petitions of Rights in 1628, the Great Reform Act in 1832 and the U.S. Bill of Rights 1791, as well as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights uh, in 1948, which was conceived of and written by Eleanor Roosevelt. Love her. I did not know that. Did you? No, no, I had no idea about that. Is that like being kept secret for a reason? Is that like a secret? I don't think it's a secret. Like I it wasn't taught. taught. In, exactly. See how much we miss out on no. in, in our schools. That's, that's terrible. This is why I want, I love doing this podcast. I can teach people or at least talk about hopefully teaching people things that they didn't learn about because politics work their way into schools. I mean, it, it just does. That's how it works. Oh, absolutely. Also the U European convention on human rights in 1950, as well as um, the human rights act in 1998. In fact, if these reports are accurate, one fourth of the world's population now live in a country whose system of government was actually inspired by the Magna Carta. How wonderful is that? Yeah. How mind blowing is that? Truly impressive. And that we took it from the barons to apply it to everyday people. Mm-hmm. Well, over time, it went from saying Freemasons to no man. Mm -hmm. Man. And if we think about it, that no man part was also <laughs> particularly significant because it literally meant no man. Yeah, 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 yeah. But over time, that's included to no one. <laughs> but mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, but even. What a beautiful progression. Right? Of, it, of it, it being inspired by something to enact it and to revise it in a way that has served such a great purpose for all that's why i think the magna carta is one of the most if not possibly the most important historical document in written history absolutely at least from a legal standpoint I, i'm i'm just i you know it's it's i wish that we had learned about the magna carta in this way in history yeah, I learned it in elementary school, but they, it was very brief. Yeah. Maybe you might learn well, a little even, bit about even it. Even in high school, it was, it was very brief and it was, I always, it always felt so removed. 
from me. Because it was you over know? 800 years ago. Yeah, yeah. But they never they never brought it back to how it's inspired so much of the foundation of our democracy today. Right. And the only was, thing I ever heard about it was this was the Magna Carta. This is King John. This is what the Magna Carta stood for, which is, as we talked about, most at least in, in the U.S. educational system, you're taught that the Magna Carta was for the rights of people, not for the rights of the barons, mostly. Yeah, yeah, that's another thing, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you learn that the Magna Carta was so important, it was used as a basis for the Declaration of Independence, and then it pretty much just stops there. And then you go on to learn about the Declaration and the Bill of Rights, and mm-hmm. our founding fathers and that's kind of how the progression goes but there's not that's pretty much it it's about a one day bit of information and in a class that runs 180 days yeah they don't they don't make it as intriguing as it actually is even learning about king richard and all i mean that that would have fascinated me that would have engaged me even in college i took us government because you kind of had to you had to take at least one class in u.s history and u.s government mm-hmm. they still didn't teach. yeah i don't even remember getting into much about king john and you know i just remember just being very just touched on just loosely maybe the name being said but like i don't remember you know and, and they always show robin hood and you know mm-hmm. the movie in history clashes for fun but you know to us it's just it's a movie you know like I just wish that we you know I'm really glad that you guys are doing this podcast and really diving deep into the the details the the more juicy interesting details and making history more alive and fun and well I'm, I'm glad you're enjoying it if we didn't do that I, I the goal of this podcast would itself be null and void I'm, I'm on honor that you let me be a part of it <laughs> <laughs> anytime you want to come on so do you have any um, last tidbits, any fun information? Oh, I certainly do. Oh, yay. <laughs> you know me. <laughs> I've always got right. something extra. <laughs> <laughs> so our last bit of information today is the modern day attempt to steal a copy of the Magna Carta, which Ooh. was actually thwarted by tourists, oh, American my- tourists. Get out. Yeah, no, no, I'm not joking. That is okay. I'm trying not to curse. <laughs> That's awesome. That's that crazy. Wow. <laughs> right, right. Imp- impressed. Right. Totally impressed. So apparently in October of 2018, oh. a man named Mark Royden, who was from Canterbury and Kent, traveled to Salisbury Cathedral with the intent to remove the 805-year-old charter to prove to the world that it was a fake. Oh, my gosh. No. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's like going to D.C. to, and I'm not going national treasure here, but to <laughs> the declaration. <laughs> and, and, and <laughs> a real life national treasure yeah but but in in terms of being able and unlike national treasure in order to keep it safe you're attempting to steal it to prove to the world that the that the declaration of independence was a fake that the one that they are have on on display is a fake at least so it's like a reverse national oh. treasure or a demented <laughs> version <laughs> i don't know <laughs> that's my best oh analogy. man 
a, a very weird version of National Treasure, essentially. But this one did not work out. <laughs> they should do a movie. So according to reports, Royden actually took with him safety goggles, hammer, and gloves. Uh-huh. All, all your typical burglary tools, I suppose. <laughs> Except for maybe a crowbar. That may have been you know, helpful. Yeah, helpful. that... <laughs> So when he got to the cathedral, like he, amateur to me. Yeah, amateur. it was a bit amateur. <laughs> no crowbar. <laughs> <laughs> so when he got to the, the cathedral, he actually tampered with one of their CCTV cameras and then decided to set off the fire alarm to cause a distraction. And with that, he actually proceeded with the hammer to smash the display case in order to remove the charter. Oh, real smooth. Yeah. Well, but before he could actually reach inside, because it's it's a there's a case within a case and it's framed uh-huh. a whole bunch of different things. But before he can actually reach inside to grab the charter, he was actually pursued by remaining members of staff within the cathedral, as well as members of the public, which included a couple of American tourists. And they were all able to detain him until authorities arrived. I love it. So when that would be me too if I saw that, I'd be like, oh no no no, not today, Satan. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> walk right today, over there. Where, John, what do you think you're doing? Yeah. Drop it. <laughs> Just imagine you see somebody smashing the case of the Magna Carta in here, and then all of a sudden, bear tackle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> when he was interviewed by the police. They asked him why he was trying to steal the copy, uh, which was only, as we stated, one of four remaining copies of the 1215 issue. Mm. And Royden answered that he believed the copy in Salisbury itself was a fake and wanted to prove it to the world. I still don't know where this thought came from. I could not find that particular part out. Why would it piss him off so much? I'm sorry, here I go. Why would it anger him so much that what they're displaying is possibly a replica to keep the real thing safe, the real document safe. Why would that anger <laughs> Like, that's, isn't that like traditionally done in other museums to keep, like, why is this such a big deal? <laughs> just, <laughs> I have absolutely no idea. Is he trying to say like, there was no Magna Carta at all? Like, no, he was literally just said the one in Salisbury, the one. not the other three, not the two in the British Museum or the one in Lincoln. He sounds mentally ill. Well, that might be actually true. So at his court hearing, he was actually convicted and charged with attempted theft and damages to the case. The mm-hmm. damages alone to the case cool. cost 15,000 pounds to repair. But think mm-hmm. about it. It's as it, it's over a hundred years old. Yeah, it's yeah. very likely kept in a temperature and humidity regulated, mm-hmm. which would explain the pricing. Yeah, and apparently Royden's lawyer Nicholas Cotter actually stated in his client's defense that Royden had actually been in a very serious car accident in 1991, oh. with le- that which left him with brain damage, which oh. eventually led him to actually have to require a caretaker. Poor thing yeah yeah that's so fascinating though Mm -hmm. well during his sentencing the judge richard parks qc actually stated this was a determined attempt on a document of huge historical importance to our country and many other countries that share our democratic traditions and he actually went on to say 
We are not concerned with the authenticity of the Salisbury Cathedral's Magna Carta. It's a state document of huge significance and one of four dating back to 1215 and the meaning of King John and the barons of Readymead. So in addition, the judge actually praised the courageous people who helped to apprehend Royden. And this actually included American tourists, Alexis and Matthew Delacombe from Louisiana. 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 Yep. <laughs> In fact, Judge Parks called on the High Sheriff of Wiltshire, Major General Ashley Truelock, to award the Delacombs a thousand pounds for their work. Yeah. So in 2019, the document was very closely examined, of course, and no damage to the document was found, even though there was very little bits of uh, shattered glass. It was not anything that actually damaged the document, thank God. And there were only modern damages to the paper hinges that actually hold the charter in place on the board that it rests on, which are easily replaced. Oh, good. So after finding that the charter was intact and after the case was officially replaced, the charter was then put back on display and is at Salisbury Cathedral. Nice. So did he actually get his answer? Was was it was it a decoy to protect the original like it's standard practice in those museums or was it the real thing? Did we ever get his answer? Okay, it's real. <laughs> yeah, I would think so too. I mean, the damages in you know the case alone proves that point. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you can just get a plexiglass case and put a document in it and say it's real. That was a great way to end. Wow. Thank you. So, what are your overall thoughts? I am just, I'm, I'm in awe, you know, that this document has just survived and continues to inspire. And I really appreciate that it's, you know, that they've made it to be revised and to evolve, you know, as it's needed to evolve and that people have taken it and used it to found their democracies in, in their own countries you know I just that's so impressive that something and something that was you know intended to keep really to keep the rich rich right right and that had you know different intentions was eventually as our thought processes evolved as we became better people to reflect the rights of all and not only oh go ahead no, so, so that that's what I'm that's what I'm thinking. I'm just thinking like this is terribly impressive that this was written so long ago and it's so foundational and applicable to to today. Mm-hmm. It's not even applicable to just countries too. If you looked at some of the conventions that came out, especially in forty eight and fifty, those were multinational conventions mm-hmm. and acts that were passed. It's incredible literally like world's rights human acts kind of a thing and just like we're you know meant and able to amend the constitution as you know our modern day world evolves and as things change you know the same was was true of the magna carta you know Mm -hmm, exactly even though we some in our government look at it as you know written in stone and not meant to be amended it's an original intent. The founding fathers wanted us to be able to amend and evolve as the as our day, daily lives changed, and as our needs changed, and as our as we became more enlightened, wiser, you know. So I, I thank you. 
for inviting me on for this. <laughs> I'm able to, you know, revisit this and to go more in depth with it than I did in, you know, elementary school and high school. So it's really neat. <laughs> Yay! <Wow>. Yay! <laughs> Well, I guess with that said, um, if you want to get in touch with us here at the podcast, you can visit our socials at Instagram.com slash History Explains It All underscore podcast, as well as Facebook.com slash History Explains It All. You can send us an email to History Explains All at gmail.com. Also, if you have any episode suggestions, feel free to send them there as well. If you listen to us on iTunes, please feel free to leave us a rate and review. It certainly helps people to find us. And if you listen to us on Spotify, don't forget to check out our episode notes where we can chat with each other regarding any episode-specific questions that I might post. And I guess with all that housekeeping out of the way, we'll sign off for today. I'll be back next week with some more history. I also want to say real quick, don't forget to take part in the polling on Instagram to vote for which episode you most like to hear because those are awesome. There'll be another uh, poll episode coming up sometime in December. So keep an eye out for that one. Okay. Well, thanks for having me on. We love and miss you, Lauren. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Bye. You ready? Red, yellow, leather, yellow, red, leather, yellow, leather. Chicken <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pepper, pick the pack of pickled peppers. <laughs> what I to do to die today? Add a minute or two. It's indistinctly hard to say, but harder still to do. That was it, our theater. We're starting to get the giggles. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here we go. Mm-hmm.